Good morning, Southview. How's everybody doing this morning? All right. That's, that's, that's energetic. Look, I am so proud of you guys because you guys not only are here on New Year's Day, you're early. I don't know how in the world you pulled that off. Uh, I, I know for us, like we went to bed last night and I thought it was World War III in our neighborhood. I mean, there was automatic gunfire. There was 50 cows being fired. There were fireworks going off everywhere. And I was like, there's no way we're going to get to sleep. And especially for you guys, you guys are here early. Uh, I want to welcome you to Southview. I'm so excited that you're here. Uh, my name is Chris. If you haven't figured out yet, I'm not Brad. Um, Brad is at the beach with his family getting some nice rest and relaxation. But I do want to welcome you to Southview. Uh, if you're a member here, we are, are so excited that you are here this morning. Uh, if you're a guest, we are equally excited that you're here this morning. Um, and, uh, and if you have a New Year's resolution that says that I'm going to go to church this year, and this is the day, this is uh, January 1st. How many of you guys have New Year's resolutions just in general? Anybody? Nobody. Okay. I was going to say how many people have already broken their New Year's resolutions this early in the morning. Um, and so nobody has New Year's resolutions, so nobody's broken them, so we're on a good path. But I do want to welcome you. We're excited we're here. you're here. Um, and the church family loves you, and, uh, and we're just excited to explore God's Word with you today. So welcome. All right, well, good morning, church. I want to invite you to stand with us. And let's praise and worship a holy and a risen God. He is worthy. Lord, we love you. We thank you that we have the honor and the opportunity to be in your house today. And I pray simply, Father, that you would have your good work in the hearts of these men and women that are here in this place. And that your name will be lifted up. You would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Let's sing.
as we sing these songs of praise, God, as we lift our hands to heaven, as we, as we, as we say we want to lay down our hearts and our lives on the sacrifice, the altar of Christ, God, I pray that that will be true in our lives. I pray that we would see something wonderful and glorious in you. Maybe today for the first time that we've never seen. And we say, yes, I want that more than I want anything else in this world. Father, I pray all distractions would fall away this morning. And we would commune with the living and the holy and the risen and the righteous God, our Redeemer, our Savior so that we can say with the saints we long for the day when we stand before you complete and made whole and we simply worship you. Let's sing. How I long to breathe the air of heaven where pain is gone and mercy fills the street to look upon the one who bled to save me, walk with him for all eternity. There will be a day. There will be a day when all will bow before him. There will be a day.
tonight. What a blessing it is to be with you guys this morning. Uh, welcome to Southview. So uh, what, the, what Brad usually does during this first part of the service is he talks a little bit about prayer. And generally, he gives us some instruction that the Bible has about how we can better our prayer life, about how we can seek God during that time, and we can grow in that. Um, and so I'm going to do something, I'm going to do the same this morning, but I'm going to do something a little bit different because I don't think that, that Brad or one of the other pastors would get up here and uh, particularly talk about this part of prayer. But as I was reading uh, this, this week in Romans, um, this is the scripture that hit me as I was thinking about this time with you this morning. Uh, Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and he says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And I love that because we think about Paul as being some giant in the church. I mean, he was one of the greatest humans to ever walk the earth besides Jesus. He was most influential. He wrote a lot of the New Testament, and the parts that he didn't write were a lot about his journeys. Uh, and so he is this magnificent picture of, uh, of a saint in the New Testament. And I love the fact that he says that he is encouraged by the church. And I think a lot of times when we look at our pastors, when we look at, uh, when we look at Brad, we look at Steve, we look at Ryan, we look at Scott, we look at our pastors and we see them as leaders of the church, and they are that, and they pray for you, and they spend time petitioning the Lord on your behalf, but they're also encouraged by you. And so I would encourage us this morning, me included, that we actively pray for our pastors, that we spend time on our knees before God seeking they're uh, seeking the prayers that would benefit them and the prayers that would encourage them. And so this morning, before we get started, I want you to think about, I'm going to challenge you, um, just thinking about the pastors that we have in our church, just thinking about the, the, the head pastor. You've got Brad, you've got his wonderful wife, Marie. You, they have four children that we need to be in constant prayer for. Um, you've got Steve, you've got Charlie, uh, you've got Scott and Heather, um, and, you, and you have their four kids, and then you've got the Colpits. Um, right, and, and so they're getting ready to have a baby. So you have these pastors, and what I would challenge you to this week in your time of prayer as you seek God's face is to pick one of those families, any one of those families, and petition God in their name and pray for them specifically. Pray that they be encouraged. Um, pray that they continuously find um, a foundation in the guarantee of salvation, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, and pray that God blesses them and God blesses their family. Uh, I also would pray for their children that as they grow in their walk with the Lord, that they would be in the will of God. Uh, and as they seek out uh, their path, um, I think that, uh, that Scott has already had a couple that have graduated. Uh, Mabry's getting ready to graduate this year. Specifically, if you pray for one of these children, pray that as they grow and as they establish their relationship with the Lord, that they walk in the purpose that he has created them for. And that's the greatest prayer that any parent could ever ask for. So I would encourage you this morning, let's start off in prayer. Let's pray specifically for the Lynch family who is uh, away this week, um, getting some much-needed refreshment and time away with the family. Dear God, I pray specifically for Brad and Marie. What a blessing that they've been to our church. And they lead well, and they love well, and they pray well, and they meet individually with many of us. Uh, they pray fervently about the message that will come from this pulpit. And what a great weight being a senior pastor is of a church. Uh, it says in your word that don't be a teacher lest you be judged more harshly. And we know that being a pastor, being a shepherd, comes with great spiritual attack. 
We pray specifically for them and their family. We pray for this time in retreat. We pray that they get to make just great memories because we know that the days are long, but the years are short. And you look up and all your, all your children have graduated and moved on and created their own families. We pray that this is a special time of retreat and a special time of prayer for their families. We love you and we lift all of this up to you. In Jesus' name we pray. So this morning, we're going to talk specifically um, about titles. Uh, and I, I, titles are so influential in our life. I, I think about titles all the time. Um, we have titles. Like if, if, if I don't know you and all of a sudden I met you in the hallway and I ask you to give me a title that describes you, what, what title would you give me? Anybody, anybody have a title? Dad, okay. Mom, love those two. Anything else? Teacher? Teacher, absolutely. Phil's a teacher. Anybody else? I couldn't hear that one. I'm sorry. Retiree? Yeah. Uh, I heard a lot of them. I heard teacher. I heard soldier. Um, there's a lot of different titles that you may have. And we come up with titles about us to communicate who we are to other people in a very easy way. And so sometimes you have a title based on what you do. Right? So somebody would say that I'm a teacher, or somebody would say that I'm a soldier, or somebody would say um, that I'm a real estate advisor, or whatever you happen to be. And when you tell me that, I don't have to spend a lot of time talking to you to know kind of what you're capable of, and what you do, and what you do for a living, and a little bit about you. It communicates quite a bit of information just in that one word. Uh, and I love the one down here that, that was said about being a mom and a dad. So when we started coming, uh, we started coming to Southview, and of course we went over to China and we adopted two kids. And I don't remember which one it is because they'll get picked on because I use them as an example in a sermon. I don't want to do that. But we got back over, and both of them were really, really small. And I don't remember which one it was, and I don't remember the circumstances that, that, that ended up with me being here with the kids without Rebecca. I don't remember what it was, but it was some dramatic. She was working overnight or something, and she didn't happen to come with us that morning. So I was responsible for the kids. And so, uh, so I, get, I, get one of the, I get one of the little girls ready, and, and, and I'm a dad. I don't know the difference between a dress and a long T-shirt, right? I mean, I don't know. That's, that's, not, my, that's not my job. And so, so I get them dressed, and I bring them into church, and I end up down the nursery wing, and one of the ladies working down in the nursery wing says, uh, 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 Chris, um, she's just wearing a shirt. Where's her pants? And, I'm, and, and, and I, I looked at her, and I said, and you're a mom, right? And she said, yeah. And I was like, well, you know what to do right? And I, I'm a dad. That's not in my wheelhouse. Like, you do know that I'm the dad. Like, fashion coordination and making sure the kids have shoes on when they come to church, that's not in my wheelhouse, right? We're here. Like, that's my job. We're here, and that's it. That's all I can promise. But I know that you're a mom, and so I'm confident that you're going to nail this, right? <clears throat> so just in telling her what my title was of dad, I communicated quite a bit of information to her, right? And so titles can be extremely helpful, and we give ourselves titles all the time. Sometimes we give ourselves not great titles, right? Sometimes we wouldn't necessarily communicate it to somebody else, but we talk to ourselves all the time, and we give ourselves titles all the time. Sometimes we may say, oh, you look in the mirror and you just say you're just a failure, right? Uh, you're a divorcee. You're never going to find anybody to love you. We, we, we give ourselves titles, and those titles impact how we see ourselves and how the world sees us as well, right? Um, and so all of those titles that we give ourselves are important to a point but what is way more important is the title that God gives you. God gives you all kinds of titles throughout the Bible. He calls you a warrior. He calls you adopted. He calls you uh, so many different titles that should define who you are in your identity in Christ. And what I wanted to do today is I just want to explore one of those titles. 
I want to explore the title of saint. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. All right. So let's look at a, a few particular pieces of scripture that kind of nail what a saint is um, and, uh, and where we actually get it from. So in scripture, there's lots of different scripture around the word saint. I think it's mentioned some, some better times of 80 sometimes in the New Testament. But specifically, when Paul is writing a letter to one of the churches, he always leads calling people saints. When he writes the letter to the church, and you know, back in those days, Paul would have written a letter to the church, and we would have all been in here, and a messenger would have come in, and he would have brought the letter from Paul, and I'd be like, all right, everybody, let's read this letter from Paul. Paul's in prison. He's writing to us specifically. Let's see what Paul has to say, right? And so when Paul is writing to these churches, he writes, and this is what he calls them. And I love how he starts in Ephesians. He says, to all the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So he talks about the church in Ephesus. Right? He's writing to the church of Ephesus. And what does he call the people in the church? Saints. He calls them saints. Can you imagine sitting in a church in Ephesus? And you, you know how messed up some of these towns were. right? And you're sitting in a church and you get a letter from Paul and it says, To the saints. And you're thinking, wow, what a title. Paul is calling me a saint. right? And, and I love this idea in, in, in Ephesians. If you've ever studied the book of Ephesians, and just a little side plug, um, we have a men's class on Wednesday night, and we're getting ready to study the book of Ephesians. So if you're interested and you've got some free time on Wednesday night, we'd love for you to join us. But if you've ever studied the book of Ephesians, it's, it's six chapters. And the first three chapters of Ephesians is God giving you titles. God is telling you who you are and who he says you are. He says that you're created by God. He says you're chosen. He says you're adopted. He says you're saved. He says you're redeemed. And all through these first three chapters of Ephesians, he says who you are. And then the second three chapters of Ephesians says, in light of who you are, what should you do? And I think it's very interesting that God wrote it that way. He didn't write it backwards. He didn't say, because of what you do, this is who you are. He said, because of who you are, this is what you do. But when we give ourselves titles, a lot of times we give ourselves titles based on what we do. We say, this is what we do. I'm a firefighter, so then that must be my title as being a firefighter. But that's not what God does. God calls you a saint in the beginning, and then he says, in light of being a saint, this is what you do. We find also when he's talking to the church in, 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 uh, in Philippi, he's talking in Philippians, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseas and overseers of the deacons. I love this one too. He says, all the saints in Christ Jesus, right? I love that, in Christ Jesus. Like, if you're in Jesus, to me that sounds a lot like when we say abide in Christ, when we say rest in Christ, when we say live your life in Christ. When you're in Christ, you know, I, I teach teens a lot. Um, I, we mentor teens and college kids a lot. And we always tell them, look, who you hang around with is who you will become, right? If you hang around with a bunch of knuckleheads, not going to be long before you're going to be a knucklehead. You hang around with a bunch of positive influences, it's not going to be long before you're positive influences. Christianity is like that too. If you hang around with Jesus long enough, you're going to start to look a lot like him, right? And so he's saying the saints in Christ. And then in Colossians, he says, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. I love that. He's calling us faithful, right? Uh, the next one is to the church of God that is in Corinth, for, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints together in First Corinthians. And, and, and get this at the end of this one. He says, we're called to be saints together. 
There's so much to unpack in that, and we're going to get through it as I go through the outline, but, but God calls us to be saints. It's not like we said we're going to be saints, and then God's like, oh, I recognize you. No, he calls us first. He calls us to be saints. We are called to this title. And then that last little part together. It's so special to me. I mean, what you guys are doing right now, being there together, and this isn't even a part of the outline. This is just free. But um, what we, we are called to be together. We are living life together. And, and, and while today we're going to talk about what it means to be a saint and, and what you should do if you're given that title, what I really don't want you to miss is that the person next to you is also called a saint, right? If you're in this room and you're in Christ Jesus and you have been saved and you've been given the title of saint, you're probably sitting next to a saint, right? And so don't miss the fact that as much as God loves you, God loves them too. And then I think about my wife. I think, well, my, my wife's a saint as well, right? Although a lot of times in marriage, sometimes marriage is tough. You don't always feel like your wife's a saint. But she's a saint in Christ as well. And then I think, well, my kids are saints, and they're not. I promise you, they're not, right? It's the last thing that I would think of when I think about my kids. But in God's eyes, my kids are saints. So don't miss the fact that when he's talking to this church in Corinth, he says that we're supposed to be saints together, right? Don't, don't look down upon the person that's sitting next to you. And then in 2 Corinthians, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth with all the saints, and you can see it over and over again, we're talking about saints. And this is probably my favorite one in the one in Romans, Romans 1-7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. I love it. It's in that order. You are loved by God, and because you're loved by God, he has called you to be a saint. He called you to be a saint. And I mean, if you can't get excited about being loved by God, I don't know what you can get excited about, right? Um, and so we, I love, love, love those passages. But you can see the recurring theme that you are a saint, right? So Paul paints this beautiful, beautiful picture. So if we know that we're going to be a saint, and we know that Paul has painted this beautiful picture of us being saints, then our next thing that we've got to figure out is, what is the definition of a saint? Well, the Greek is hagios, uh, and that's the word that's used in the New Testament. Specifically, it's used in all of these instances that I quoted, and there is a definition for it. It says, to be set apart by God and to be set apart for God. And as we work through the sermon, we're going to look at both of those specifically. But I don't want you to miss the definition. I want you to hang on to this definition. And then also in the definition, it says that you're holy and you're sacred. This is a tough part of the definition because there's a lot of times I don't feel holy. There's a lot of times I don't feel sacred. And people will shy away from this definition because they don't feel worthy of this definition. right? But I think it's important for us to explore how do you become a saint? How do you get this title? right? And, and, and the, I love this part of the year. This is like one of my favorite parts of the year because we just came out of Christmas, right? And, and I love Christmas and we still have all of our Christmas stuff. In fact, Austin said this morning, when are you going to take down your Christmas stuff? May? And I'm like, maybe, maybe. I just love it. And, and so, but I love this part of the year specifically because on Christmas, God drew a line in the sand and he sent Jesus to this earth to live among us and be Emmanuel. And, 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 and I think about how dead the world is in January and February and, and how it must have felt in that 400 years between the time of the Old Testament prophets and the time that God drew the line in the sand and sent Jesus to us and how empty that must have felt. And I feel that way a lot in winter. I mean, it gets dark at like 3 o'clock now, doesn't it? And it like gets dark at 3 o'clock and I feel like I got to go to bed. And I'm like, kids, get ready for bed. And they're like, it's 5. And I'm like, okay, let's go to bed anyway. Um, <clears throat> but... But it's so dark, and it's so cold, and it's so desolate in winter. And then you begin to work towards the cross. You begin to work towards Easter. And when you're in North Carolina, stuff starts blooming in February. It's exciting. 
right? You have little crocuses that come up, and you got the yellow, uh, you, you got the yellow buttercups. And then colors begin to bloom all over the place. And I love that because coming out of death, there's new life. And the new life springing up everywhere. And for me, it culminates on Easter. And it doesn't matter when Easter falls, but for some reason or another, my mom's dogwood bloom every single Easter, right? And, and it's just exciting to see the world explode with life. And it reminds me of those two <clears throat> lines in the sand that God drew. The one line in the sand that said, I'm sending my son as a savior to live a perfect life to die in your place so that you may be redeemed. And then that Sunday where he came out of the grave and rose and won our eternal life. And it's such an exciting time. And so I would encourage you this. If you have recognized that you're a sinner and dead in your trespasses, and God has redeemed you and saved you, and you have claimed him as your savior, then you're a saint. You are an absolute saint according to the biblical definition. Because the biblical definition says that you've been set apart by God, you didn't do it, and you've been set apart for God, which means that you have a purpose in Him setting you apart. So I love, love, love the definition. But I will tell you this, a lot of people, the the first thing we have to figure out is, are you a saint? Have you accepted this title? Are you willing to accept this title? And I will tell you this, I always love to think about the picture of the three crosses. Uh, when, you have, when you're at Golgotha and you see, the three, you, you see a picture of the three crosses, there's Jesus in the middle and then there's two answers, right? There's a thief on one side, there's a thief on the other side. One thief says, you are my savior, and Jesus says, I'll see you in paradise today, and one thief doesn't. Those are the only two answers. There's a reason why there's three crosses, it's because there's, a Je- there's Jesus and there's two answers. But a lot of us live our lives like, ah, I don't know if I'm really ready to decide yet or not. I don't know. I mean, I haven't really made up my mind, so I'm not really on either cross. But until you say yes to Jesus, until Jesus uh, elects you and saves you, and you come to Jesus, you're on the other cross. There is no maybe, right? We're not guaranteed tomorrow, but there is no maybe. Until you say yes, you're on the no cross. There's no middle ground. Uh, I like to think about it like, uh, you know, you think about a, a lady that's pregnant. She's either pregnant or she's not, right? There's no little bit of pregnant. You know, you're not a little bit of a saint. But but functionally, we live like we're a little bit of a saint, right? We come in on Sunday, and we're excited to be here, and we raise our hands to Jesus, and we sing the songs because the music is fantastic, and then we go to work Monday, and we live our lives just like we lived our lives before we came to church on Sunday, right? In essence, we're Sunday saints, right? And we know that Sunday saints are no good. I mean, they're not even a good football team. What are they, six and nine, right? The New Orleans Saints are just, they're no good. They're trash. You don't want to be a Sunday saint. Leave that to the football team, right? You want to be a saint all through the week. And so I would encourage you this. I would say, hey, go all in. If you're going to be a saint and you're going to be saved and this title comes along with being a saint, then go all in, right? Most people that stand in this pulpit will tell you, hey, I can see when you're on your phones because I can see the light light up your face. Get off Instagram, right? Um, I'm going to tell you, go ahead and go on Instagram, right? I need for you to change your title to saint, I need for you to go to the top of your Instagram or the top of your Twitter and say, I'm a saint, right? And they make it easy for us now because now they have places where you can put your pronouns, right? And so now your pronoun is saint, 
right? And they'll say, that's not grammatically correct. Well, none of the other pronouns are grammatically correct either, right? My pronoun is a saint, and I demand that you call me a saint, right? I want to be saint. I want it on my title. I want it up there, right? And so there's places there that you can do that, and you can reflect a saint. Um, I will tell you this, too. I mean, when you're meeting each other, right? When you come up to people, say, hey, uh, St. Bill, I'm St. Chris, brother. It's nice to see you. St. Jolene, oh, it's so good to see you. I'm so excited that you're here. When you meet people, call people saints, right? Uh, that's who you are in Christ. Don't shy away from it. Uh, I will tell you, I, I'll tell you a story, and I, Rebecca probably get mad at me for telling you this, but, but I'm not a good driver. I'm a very frustrated driver when I drive through town, and it's probably Fable's fault. It's probably not my fault. But when I drive through town, I get so frustrated, and so when we go somewhere, I tell Rebecca we're driving my truck. And she's like, why do you want to drive your truck? I don't like your truck. I'd rather ride in mine. And I'm like, well, you have this license plate, and it says, Jesus saved me basically, right? It says, J.C. Hill, Jesus healed me. And I'm like, I can't drive the way that I want to drive when I'm wearing that license plate, right? Because I'm not driving in a way that's glorifying God. Uh, and, and so I'd rather drive my truck so nobody knows anything about it. But, but if you think about it, if I go up to you and I call you a saint and you call me a saint, it does make us rise to a level of standard that we should be rising to, right? And, and a lot of times people don't want to have the, the title of saint because they don't want to rise that. I will tell you this, uh, I teach a men's class, and we, we've taught many, many times, we've taught this class called Titles. And Titles, we spend 13 weeks going through 13 different titles um, that, that God gives different men, uh, and one of the titles that we talk about is saint. And it doesn't matter where I put that particular lesson, that is the most contentious lesson of the 13 weeks we talk about, for a, a couple of specific reasons. Number one, a lot of guys will tell me, Look, Chris, I get it. I know the definition of, of saint says that, um, says that if you're saved, that you're a saint. I get it, but I'm not worthy. I don't feel like a saint. When I look in the mirror, who I see is not reflective of a saint, and I, 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 I just can't accept the title, right? And they struggle to accept the title of saint. And then also I get the, the, the comment from some guys, and they're like, look, I just don't want to live that way, right? I mean, if, if I take the title of saint, then I know that God requires a lot of me and I just really don't know that I'm in a place yet that I can live that way. And so I don't want the title. And so this is one of the titles that we talk about to where it's really a struggle to get people to accept that title. That's why I said just a few minutes ago, the very first thing we've got to do is get you to accept that you're a saint. And so what I want to do over the next few minutes is I'm going to talk about the three biggest objections that I get when I talk about accepting the title of saint. And I'm going to talk about what is the objection that I hear and then I'm going to say, this is God's truth as to why that objection is wrong. Is that cool? All right, and then we'll, we'll go on after that. <clears throat> the first objection that I get is I have not earned sainthood, right? And when I talk to guys, they're like, look, you know, I, I can't accept this title because I didn't do anything to earn it. Because for most of us, we're performance-based, right? We feel like if we're going to get something, we need to earn it, right? And so for a lot of guys or for a lot of uh, people that talk about saint, it's like, I haven't earned it. Well, here's the biblical truth that says that that's wrong. God did the work. You don't have to do the work, right? And I think the Catholics kind of messed us up on this because they have this whole saint system, and, like, you have to be, like, Superman to get into the sainthood, um, you know, and so, and it's really, really hard. I think you have to die, and then you have to have people come out and investigate you, and then you have to perform miracles post-mortem and all this different stuff, and so they make it really, really hard. Look, they're wrong, right? Paul says that we are all saints if we're in Christ, Right? You don't have to be Superman. You don't have to be super religious man or super religious woman to be a saint. So the bad news is the Catholics got it wrong. 
And one of the things they got wrong is that you never, ever will be worthy enough to be called a saint. It's just not how it works. I'm not worthy to be called a saint. You're not worthy to be called a saint. That's not the point of being called a saint. The point of being called a saint is that God did the work, not you, and he gave you that title as a gift. So the truth of the matter is, if that's your objection, is that I haven't done anything to earn it, nobody asked you to earn it. Nobody asked you to earn it. And I think about it like this. Is, um, you know, Martin Luther and John Calvin, they talk about this idea of an exchange. And I like to call it the great exchange. And what it means is, is that God sent Jesus on this earth. And he walked on the earth and he lived a perfect life. And when he lived that perfect life, he went to the cross. And he was convicted of a crime that he didn't commit. And he paid the price and he shed his blood and he died on the cross and he rose on the third day. So that he would take off his white righteous robe and he would put that white righteous robe around me and you being in Christ. And, and Martin Luther and John Calvin called it the great exchange. There was an exchange that occurred on the cross uh, at Calvary. And so I would encourage you to remember that it wasn't anything that you did. There's not anything that you did to earn it. There's not anything that you, did to lo- you can do to lose it. That he did the work and it's not about what you've done, it's about what he's done. And when I think about this, I think about, like, um, you ever had a name badge? Like, if you worked at a place where they make you have a name badge and it gives your title on it? Uh, you can walk around with saint on your title. Uh, and you can boast about being a saint. And you can boast about being a saint while at the same time being humble. Now, how is that? It's because I didn't do it. I'm a saint. Woohoo! I'm excited about it. But I didn't do anything. Jesus did all the work. So I'm not really boasting about myself. I'm boasting in Christ and the work that he did. So you can be a humble saint. Number two, the big objection that I get is, you don't know who I am. And I hear this from a lot of guys, you don't know who I am. Because most people, when they look in the mirror, what do they see? They see faults, they see failures. You know, you know when you look in your mirror at home and you're all by yourself, you probably are the most critical person of yourself that ever existed, right? You know, whereas other people would look at you and they would see, they would see the good things that you do. When you look at it, you see all the bad things, right? But God's truth says that God made you in his image. God made you in his image. And I think about how we see ourselves in the mirror. God doesn't see you that way. He doesn't see you that way at all. Matter of fact, if we look at some of God's truths as to how he sees you, Let's look at some of those. So in Genesis, what does God say? God says, I made the, uh, the, the land and the, the water and the firmament and everything. I made the stars. I made the galaxies. And all that was what? Good, right? And then he says, I make the animals and I made all of this other stuff. And then all that was good. But then he makes man. And what does he say that is? It's very good, right? You are the best creation that God ever made. He values that creation over and above even the stars and the moon. It's amazing when you actually look at the words in Genesis and see what he's talking about. And then in addition to that, in Ephesians 2, he says that you are his masterpiece. Just like Michelangelo had the masterpiece David. You are his masterpiece. And and I think about this a lot because if you look in the mirror and you see your weaknesses, God doesn't make you that way. God creates perfection. He, create, he created you. And I think about he, God knew you before he created the heavens. He created you. And God doesn't make junk and God doesn't make mistakes. He chose you. He elected you. He saved you. And he has a plan for your life. And so in order to look in the mirror and think, that, think about your weaknesses and your failures, you're missing the whole idea that God doesn't make mistakes. 
And I think sometimes even for our failures and even our weaknesses, God uses those, right? There, there's a reason why some of those things exist. And I, I think about, um, you know, when we miss the fact that we're made in the image and likeness of God and that God has made us his masterpiece, it's not like we just started this. You can go all the way back before mirrors were invented and Eve was doing the exact same thing. When Eve is in the garden, what's the first sin? Anybody remember? The first sin is the devil told Eve that if she ate the apple, she would what? She would be like God, right? But God already said that he created us in his image. And so God lied to Eve and said, if you do these actions, then you can be like God. He's doing the same thing here. He's telling you that you're not worthy of this title that God's already given you. And now you need to work really, really hard to earn the title of a saint when God says, I've already given it to you. You don't have to bite the apple, right? And so it's the exact same sin that, uh, that Eve fell for. So I would encourage this, is, is if you look in that mirror, is to quit looking at through that mirror through your eyes. Quit looking at your failures and your weaknesses and start looking at the way that God sees you. Because of the great exchange that we talked about in that last point, when, when Christ takes off that white robe and he puts it on you and God takes on your sin, past, present, and future, and, and nails it to the cross and pays the price for it, when, when God looks at you, he sees you wrapped in Christ's robe. He sees you in that white robe. That's how God sees you. And so when you look in the mirror, that's how you should see yourself. And then the last one on this, uh, this section, the, the third one is, um, I hear this from people all the time, look, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the things that I've done in my past. Man, I've made all kinds of mistakes. I mean, my life is, is, is littered with mistakes. And, and some of those mistakes are big mistakes. I mean, some people hit potholes in the road. I've already run my car off in the ditch, right? Some of those mistakes I really don't think I can come back from. And people get weighed down by that guilt. So what's the biblical truth behind that? God forgave you. God's already forgiven you. You know, I think part of the problem is, is that we know ourselves more than most people know ourselves. There's a part of us that we don't share with other people, right? And so we know the deepest and the darkest places of what we do and what we've done. And so we hold ourselves accountable to that. And God says this to you. God says, I know everything about you. I know everything that you've ever done. I know every motivation that you've ever had for everything you've ever done. And I still forgive you. That's an amazing thought. God knows you better than you know yourself, and he's already forgiven you. Just because you make a mistake doesn't mean that you're not forgiven. Uh, I, I love one of our college kids, uh, and I think he'll be in the next service, so I'll pick on him in the next service, Kyle. And he has this big tattoo on his arm, and it says, Tetelestai. And it's one of the last words that Christ says on the cross. And Christ says, it is finished. What does he mean by that? It means it's done. It means that your sin, past, present, and future, has been nailed to the cross, and Christ has already paid for it with his blood and with his life. It's paid for. There's nothing extra that you have to do. There is nothing about punishment that says that it's the cross plus anything else, right? I think about, I love Billy Graham, and one of the books that Billy Graham wrote at the end of his life was called uh, Nearing Home. And in that book, he says this, and, and it just, it, it hit me. Uh, he, he says, I followed Christ, and I've loved Christ, and I've studied Christ, and I've been abiding in Christ for, for over 80 years. And he said, in all, the, all my life, the one thing that I've never, ever been able to do is to completely understand the depth of the cross. Just think about that for a second. 
We know about the cross. We know where sin was nailed to the cross. We know some of the sacrifice that God made. But Billy Graham, who's probably the greatest evangelist of our lifetime, said in the 80 years of studying Christ and the cross, he never ever was able to get to the bottom of it. It makes a lot of sense. I don't think that we'll ever understand the sacrifice that God made on that day. And, and so I would encourage you with this. One of the things that I think that you need to do is you need to forgive yourself. If you're that person that says, I'm not worthy of being called a saint because of the things that I've done, you need to forgive yourself, right? Christ is the only one that can take on your sin. God is the only one that can forgive you. And for God to forgive you, knowing everything that he knows about you, and for you to withhold that forgiveness for yourself is damaging. You need to forgive yourself. And I, I would also encourage you of this, if, 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 if that's not enough, don't cheapen the cross. Understand today that the cross was enough. And if you say that you still need to punish yourself over and above what God has said you've been forgiven for, then you're saying the cross wasn't enough. It cheapens the work that the cross did. And so for me, I feel the same way. Like when you think about the cross, I mean, it should just absolutely break you. Uh, it should absolutely break you. I, and the more and more I think about the cross and the older I get, it just breaks me. And I don't understand how somebody could love me so much to give his first and his best and to die on that cross. Um, and so for me, I'm more of a visual person. So I've got some slides for you to show you a couple of pictures. So I had the opportunity um, to, uh, to go to uh, Israel, take some of our kids to Israel. Uh, we took some college kids and some high school kids from Southview to Israel uh, last year. And we had an opportunity to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Uh, it was really, really cool. And, and in SLU, one of the things they tell you, student, student leadership in university is what we, who we went with. And one of the things that they talk about is um, the Bible is the best book that was ever written. The only problem is it doesn't have pictures. And I'm like, okay, I can live with that because I'm visual and i got to see pictures in order to be able to figure it out. And so we saw some pictures. And so I wanted to share a couple of the pictures with you because I think it helps to illustrate the impact of the cross. Okay? So we walk into Jerusalem. We're in the old city. And we come to this place called uh, Pilate's Courtyard. And this is the stone in Pilate's Courtyard. It's one of the stones that you sit around. And we're sitting on these stones in Pilate's Courtyard. And the leader of our group says, look, he says, this is the spot where you're standing right now is where Jesus was beaten and scourged and bled before he carried his cross to Golgotha. You are standing in the spot. And he says, I want you guys to get down on the floor. And he said, I want you to close your eyes. And he said, I want you to put your hand on this stone. And he says, and I want you to think about the day that God saved you. He says, I want you to think about the moment that God saved you. He said, and, and move your hand around. He said, this stone is where the blood was spilled that earned that moment. And it just, it, it hits you different when you're standing in the spot and you know that Jesus was right here 2,000 years ago bearing the, bearing the punishment for my sin. It hits a little bit different. And so then we left, uh, we left Pilate's, <coughs> Pilate's courtyard and we started walking down. And you'll see there, there's a couple of our college kids right there. That's my son Austin on the right. And that's Will, you can tell by his beautiful locks of hair, which I'm extremely jealous of. <clears throat> They're walking down the Via Dolorosa. They're walking down... God took his cross, Jesus took his cross, and he walked down this road to be crucified. And you can imagine, these are, these are kind of, they're tied in, and you're walking down this, and it's probably at that time it's filled with people mocking him and spitting on him and chastising him, and he's carrying this cross down this road to go to Golgotha. And then the next slide, this is Golgotha. This is the, uh, this is the hill of the, the skull. 
And you can look on the right, and you can see there's kind of a skull outline there. And it's been a long time. It's been 2,000 years, and so erosion kind of, uh, erosion kind of happens. But you can see the two eyes. The nose has fallen down since then. But this is the place. This is, you're standing in the place that those three crosses were. It's unbelievable. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I laugh because of the song that On a Hill Far Away. It actually wasn't on a hill. It was down at street level. And the reason why they put it at street level is because they wanted people that were coming into Jerusalem to know that this is the punishment if you break the law. And so they were put on display for anybody that was coming through these crossroads entering the city of Jerusalem. And so I would encourage you, the same way they used it as a display, I think that we can look at the crosses and, 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 and learn a lot from that as well. It should be a warning to us that Jesus is in the middle and there's two choices, and that's it. Right? So it's the same thing on our, on our road. It's a, it's, a, it's a warning. And then the last one, this is the tomb. This is where they buried Jesus. And, and, and I, I don't want to spoil the end of the book for you, but we went in and he's not there. Right? Uh, and, and so it, it's an empty tomb. Uh, there's nothing there. So there's a, when you walk in, there's a big cross, and it's a Byzantine cross, and it was put there in the third century. People do mark, this is the tomb that Jesus was, was buried in and he rose from. So it's so cool for me to be able to, to see it visually. Because I don't think, I'm just, I, if I live to be as old as Billy Graham is, I, I don't think that I'll ever be able to understand the impact of the cross that, that deeply. I don't think that I'll ever fully understand the, the sacrifice that God made for me. And, and I think about, too, um, you know, I'm the debate coach for uh, the homeschool group. And uh, <clears throat> we take kids all over the country, and, and they debate, and they do different things like this. And we had a kid that was doing uh, apologetics. <clears throat> And so in apologetics, they stand up in front of people, they get a prompt, and then like they get three minutes to prep, and then they have to give a 10-minute speech on a particular theological concept. And so she's doing this, and, and she's giving the cross presentation, and she's talking about the cross, and she just, she stops for a second, and she's tearing up, and she's not doing it on purpose. It's because she just thought about the cross, and it broke her, right? That's how we should look at the cross. Every time we think about it, it should bring us back to our knees and recognize the impact that Christ has done for us. Right? I want that to continue over and over in my life. I never, ever want to walk away from understanding the impact of the cross. Uh, one of my best friends always says, he says, we're supposed to live our lives in the shadow of the cross. The cross never moves, but we do. Sometimes we walk away from the shadow of the cross, but we always want to live in the remembrance of the sacrifice that was done on that day. So <clears throat> I think about that in, in this sense. Um, what are the objections and what are the truths? A lot of people tell me that I haven't earned it. And I'm going to say, you don't have to earn it. God did all the work. Some people say, you don't know who I am. There's no way that you can call me a saint. And I would say, I don't need to know who you think you are. All I need to know is who God says you are. You're worthy of being a saint. And then some people will say, you don't know what's in my past. You, you, there's no way in the world you would call me a saint if you knew the things that I've done. And then I would say, brother, you don't know the things that I've done either. And God calls me a saint. And if he can call me a saint he, and he can call Paul a saint, he can call you a saint. Right? Because he's forgiven you. You don't have to continue to punish yourself for that. And I think, about, <clears throat> I think about all the time we lose. Because if you think about the things that we do in our lives. We spend a lot of time trying to perform so people will think better of us. So God will think better of us. We spend a lot of time beating ourselves up over who we think we are and our failures and our weaknesses. And we spend a lot of time saying that we're not good enough because of the things we did in the past. And persecuting ourselves for the, for the mistakes that we've made. And... and and what God is saying here is like, look, I'm giving you this title. You don't have to do all of that work anymore. You can live in freedom because of Christ that allows you to be able to do other things than to do all of that work that you don't need to do, right? 
And so we're going to take the second part of the definition. The second part of the definition is if being a saint is a gift and you're set apart by God, then let's take a look at the second part of the definition, which is you're set apart for God. Like, what is the reason that God gave you this title? What does he want you to do besides beating yourself up and trying to convince yourself that you need to earn sainthood? Like, if you put away all of those efforts and then focus on these three things, and there's probably more. These are just the first three that I came up with. But, but I think about this, and, I, and uh, I love that Steve's in the back because you ask Steve, what's the purpose of life? And he's going to tell you the greater Westminster Catechism. It says, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the purpose of life, Right? There's nothing else that we need to do other than glorify God and enjoy him forever. But how in the world can you enjoy him if you don't know him? Right? I mean, he, he freed us. And so we should want to know him. I, I, remember, um, <clears throat> I remember when I was saved. I was saved late in life. I was saved at 28. And uh, so I've been a Christian for about 20 years. Actually, I'm getting older. It's been longer than 20 years. I'll be honest about that. Um, and, and, but, but the day he saved me, he just gave me this overwhelming thirst to learn about him. I desire to learn about him and I can't get enough of him and it's just unquenchable. And that's one of the first things of being a saint. I mean, if he did this, then I really, really need to know him. And I, and I think about it like this. I think about it like marriage, right? Um, so uh, I married Rebecca. We got married uh, over 20 years ago. Um, and, uh, and I knew her on the day that I got married. And our wedding day, we, I loved it. It was phenomenal. I don't really don't remember that much of it, but I, I loved it and it was phenomenal, but it was just a couple of hours right? Uh, and while it's essential, the wedding day is essential to have a 50-year-long marriage, uh, it's not the whole thing, right? In fact, we were probably pretty young, and we were probably pretty stupid, and we probably didn't know what we were doing, but I knew her pretty well at that point, but I didn't know her as much as I know her today. Having been married almost 25 years, I know her way better today than I did on the day we got married. Which one do you think is more important? I tend to think that the time that I've spent getting to know her is extremely important, right? And, and as Christians, we have an obligation to get to know Christ. We have an obligation to pursue God, right? Can you think about like this? Think about like if I married Rebecca, and we got about 10 years into our marriage, and I'm like, look, you know, I've been sitting here this whole time, and nobody has taught me anything about you, right? I mean, I haven't learned anything. I'm waiting for a counselor to come in, or somebody to teach me something, or maybe one of your parents come over and teach me something about you. That's not how you live in marriage. When you marry her, you begin to learn about her. You want to pursue her. You want to know more about her. You want to know how she likes her eggs cooked in the morning. You want to know how she likes her coffee. You want to know what drives her. You want to know what her motivations are, what her passions are. And so you pursue her and you figure all those things out. Salvation's not any different. The day that God saved you is critical and it's important, but the discipleship over the next 50 years is really, really important as well. And you have to pursue God to go get that discipleship. You can't sit back and say, well, you know, if our church was a little bit better, or maybe we had a better journey group leader, or man, if we just had some more resources, man, that'd be great, and I could get to know God. No, you get out of the relationship which you put in it. If we don't have the resources, then go out and figure it out for yourself and create those classes, right? Figure out how to pursue God and then go chase him with everything that you've got. So I love that. And, And I will tell you, too, we've got great resources here. If you desire to know God well, there's plenty of stuff here. Uh, we'll start with one, just the Bible, right? I, I assume that today we probably have more Bibles than anywhere else in the world, 
right? I probably have 10 in my house. I'm sure you do too. Not only that, but it's on my phone and it's on my computer and it actually reads the Bible to me. I don't even have to read the Bible, right? You hit a little button on the app and it reads it to you. Uh, and that, that's, to me, it's mind-blowing, the resources that we have today. Uh, we also have here at Southview, we have equipped classes. We have them on Sunday, we have them on uh, Wednesday. Uh, there's going to be a, uh, a, a Every Man a Warrior class coming all days of the week. There's all types of ways that you can get to know Christ, right? We have journey groups. And, and I'll tell you this, too, and I hope I don't overload you guys, Steve. But we have a great stable of pastors that if you say, I want to learn how to read the Word of God, they will meet with you one-on-one -on -one and walk through the Word of God together until you're comfortable doing it by yourself. That's just unbelievable. Like, you think about how many times you've closed your Bible because you're just like, I don't understand it. I, I don't get it. I don't know what I'm doing. Right? We have experts here that are willing to walk you through it and teach you that. Right? But you have to take the initiative to do that. The second big thing that God has called us for is what I like to call second calling. I mentioned we talk a lot to college kids. We talk a lot to, to uh, teenagers. Uh, and I always talk to them about second calling. The first calling is that God has saved you. The second calling is what is he asking you to do? In Ephesians, it says that he has created good works in advance for you to do. And that doesn't mean with your entire life all the time. It could mean just today, that God's created works today for you to do. right? But God has a second calling on your life. He called you to him. And then he created you for a purpose. He's giving you talents, he's giving you passions, and he's giving you opportunities. And he created you for a purpose. And I think a lot about, like, why do we not do the things that God asks us to do? And I think a lot about the apostles when I think about that, right? There's sometimes where God asks me to do something, and I'm really just not sure I can do it. Like, God, I, I, I don't, like, when we, he called us to go adopt, I'm like, I don't know how we're going to do this. I don't know how we're going to afford it. I don't know how we're going to get to China. I don't know. Uh, I don't even know where the, what the kid is. I don't know anything, right? And God says, I just called you to do it. I didn't, I didn't say you had to do it up in your own power. And I think about the apostles when I think about that. I mean, there was nothing about the apostles that they were first-round draft picks. On any basketball team or any financial advisor team, on any leadership team, they wouldn't have made any of those. They were a bunch of, they, they were a, a, a bunch of fishermen, right? They were a bunch of no-talented, just normal people. And God called them to do amazing things. I think about Peter in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. And God's standing out in the water, and he's like, Peter, come to me. And Peter gets out of the boat. Now, do you think he thought he could walk on water? No way. But he says, Jesus asked me to do it, and I know that I can't do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. And he stepped out of the boat, and he gave God an opportunity to show off. And this is a tough question. When I ask you a question, it's a challenge, too. When was the last time that you did something that was absolutely impossible just because God asked you to do it? So many times God asks us to do something that is impossible in our strength, but he's not asking you to do it in your strength. He's not asking you to limit his power. He's saying, I want you to do it because when you do it, everybody's going to know that there's no way that you could have done it, and the only glory that can be given has to go to God. Number three is proclaim the gospel. This is an easy one. What you hold dear, you will proclaim. And if you don't believe me, just find an Alabama football fan. Right? Roll Tide. Right? They love it. And because they love it, they proclaim it. They will go to the games. They'll spend money to go to the games. They will stand up and cheer when a touchdown happens. Uh, they will get all excited about it. And if you're ever around them, they're going to tell you all about it. Right? And if you don't believe that, think about like a young man who just meets a girl for the first time. We see that all the time in youth, and, and we'll come in, they'll come into youth, and, 
hey, Mr. Chris, I, you know, I met this girl this past weekend, and oh, she's so beautiful, and oh, she's so nice, and I don't hear anything except that girl for the next six weeks, right? Because he's so enamored with her that he proclaims her, right? You will proclaim what you hold dear. And I'll tell you this, there is nothing about the gospel that was ever supposed to be difficult to proclaim. That's probably the easiest thing we can do as Christians. We should be so enamored with the gospel that it just flows out of us. Uh, we have some spiritual mentors that I absolutely love, and they live in Elizabethtown, and we call them Nana and Papa. And uh, they invited us for dinner a couple of weeks ago, and, and, and I walk in the house, and Nana just grabs me and hugs me, and she says, Chris, I can't wait to tell you what Jesus has done in my life this week. It's the first thing out of her mouth, and the reason is, is because she's been thinking about him all day, and she's been reading her Bible, and she's witnessed the blessings that he's given in her life, and she hasn't missed them, and she can't wait to share the good news with somebody that she loves and cares for. As Christians, that's what we're called to do, proclaim the gospel. It's the easiest thing that we can do as Christians. And so, sharing the gospel was never supposed to be hard. And I'll tell you this as we kind of close out. Um, if you know who you are, you know what to do. It's like we started in the beginning. We started talking about Ephesians. There's a reason why God calls you a saint first, and then he tells you what to do. And uh, so if you've, ever known, uh, if you've ever known somebody that's adopted, adoption is very dear to our hearts. But if you've ever known anybody that's adopted an older child, uh, can I paint a picture for you? So the older child comes from, a lot of times it comes, it comes from a broken home, whether it's he or she comes from a broken home. And there's a lot of bad habits that are formed in an older child that are really challenged with a lot of history and a lot of trauma, right? And so what do you do as a dad that's adopted an older child? You go out and you put your arms around this child and you say, welcome to our family, you're a Calhoun now. And the child says, I haven't done anything to earn being a Calhoun. And then the child continues to do the things that they did when they were in foster care or when they were in their previous family and they screw up. And every time they screw up, you come alongside them and you say, you're a Calhoun. We're going to work through this together. That's not how we act. We act a different way because we're a Calhoun. What I would never do as a dad is say, look, I've, I've come to pick you up from foster care, and you can come live with us, but until you kind of get this thing together, we're not going to call you a Calhoun yet, right? There's a reason why God calls you a saint first and then tells you what to do. Because your sainthood is not based on your performance. God says, you're a saint, and then you screw up. And we sin again. And then God comes alongside of you and he says, you're faithful, my brother. I love you. You're a saint. And then we screw up again and God says, you're a saint and I forgive you. And then we screw up again over and over and over again. And as we live our life in Christ, abiding in Christ, we start to look a lot more like Christ. We become the titles that we give ourselves. And God knows that if he calls you a saint, you eventually will conform, be conformed to his image. That's one of the reasons why I love adoption is because it's a perfect picture of that. I would never withhold the title, but with the title comes great responsibility and forgiveness. Love you guys. I'm so thankful that I was able to share with you guys today, and I hope you guys have a great day, and we're going to do one more song. Thank you for that reminder. It's so funny. I don't know if you guys are like me, but almost every Sunday that I sit here and I listen to these messages, I think, man, that, I 
he have a microphone in my house or something? Because that is like directly related to me. So thank you for your faithfulness. Um, it, it's apt that we close with this song called I Speak Jesus because that's really the purpose of our lives, right? So I want to encourage you as we stand and we sing. I want you, if you feel so led, to find a brother or sister and pray over them, sing with them, sing to them. Speak the name of Jesus over their lives so they might know the power of Christ that is in each one of us, not our power, but the power of the Holy Spirit that joins us together as believers, as saints that nothing else ever could do. So stand with us and let's sing.
Um, if you guys wouldn't mind uh, taking a seat, we're going to go over a couple of announcements. So if you are a guest, I'm so excited that you're here. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Uh, you can uh, text our, um, you can text guest to, uh, con- or you can te- text connect to 910-424-1298. It's a way that we're able to uh, stay in touch with you. It'll send you a little form. You can fill out that form. Promise we won't send anybody to your house, but it's just a way for us to keep a record that you were here and to be able to encourage you. Uh, in addition, uh, another, uh, another announcement that we have is missions. Um, the Hungry Mission Trip Information Meeting is uh, January 8th, so that will be next week. There are applications in the church office if you're interested in going to Hungary. It's such a cool uh, mission trip. And uh, third, we have church membership classes. They start January 15th, uh, and it'll be on the 22nd and the 29th. So the way that membership works at Southview is uh, that you, you uh, join a class that we have uh, every so often, and they walk you through church membership. They walk you, walk you through what it means, what are the responsibilities of a church member. Uh, and we would love to have you involved with that as well. In addition, we have upcoming equip classes. The equip classes, uh, they start um, January 8th. On Wednesday night, we have Journeying into God's Word. We talked earlier about if you want to know God and you don't know how to read your Bible. This is a great way to get started. We talk about how to read your Bible, uh, how to explore it, how to experience your new life in Christ is also on Wednesday. On Sunday, there's a marriage class uh, for ladies, and it's created to be his help meet. And then this class uh, is starting on January 15th. It's called Instructing a Child's Heart. Rebecca and I will be teaching that, and it's a great study for parents. If you are like us and you struggle sometimes to parent, uh, it's a great class to go through some practical ideas on how to parent according to God's plan. Uh, and I will, I will uh, shameless plug, I will uh, say as well, on Wednesday night, we do have a men's group. The men's group uh, and a ladies group. My wife teaches a ladies group in the Sunshine Room. The men meet over here. And starting uh, the second week in January, we're going to begin going through the book of Ephesians. We would love to have you join us. We'll have resources in the room. We'll be able to show you exactly how to explore God's word, to interpret God's word, how to read what God would have for you. Uh, and it would be an exciting time. I'd love to have you there. Uh, Love you guys, and I hope you guys have a great week, uh, and so thankful that you guys are here. You guys are dismissed.